Hi, everyone. This is Emma from the Professional Book Nerds podcast sponsored by Overdrive. And today I have a very special guest joining me. We have Rachel Kohler-Croft. She is a novelist and screenwriter in Los Angeles, where she scripted projects for Bloomhouse, Sony Pictures Entertainment, and Comedy Central, among many others. She lives by the beach with her husband, Charles, and their rescue pit bull, Juniper. And we are here to talk about Stone Cold Fox, which will be out February 14th. And this is her debut novel. Welcome, Rachel. Hi, Emma. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited to talk to you today about Stone Cold Fox, but before we dive in to the book, could you tell our listeners just a little bit more about you? Oh, certainly. Um, I covered a lot of ground in my bio, but yes, I live in Los Angeles. I've been here for about 12 years um, working as a screenwriter, and during the pandemic, I got to work on my first novel, and we're here today. It's very exciting. I admit that I saw your book many, many months ago and was immediately drawn to it. And so for our listeners that might not be familiar with Stone Cold Fox, could you tell them a little bit about the book? Certainly. I refer to it as my hot girl con artist novel, Um, but it is about the an ambitious woman who sets her sights on marrying into the 1% via Colin Case, who is an heir to a massive American dynasty. And for her, the trouble isn't really snagging him, but gaining the approval of his family, not to mention going toe-to-toe with his childhood best friend, Gail Wallace Lester, who is on a mission to take B down, um, potentially revealing her dark past. It's so good. This for me was like heartbreakers meets my best friend's wedding. I love that. Thank you. (laughs) You're welcome. Which is two of my favorite films. Heartbreakers. I don't know why it's so good with Sigourney Weaver and Jennifer Love Hewitt. And I thought of this the whole time. Oh, thank you. That's a really high compliment. I thought of it quite a bit as well. And um, my best friend's wedding was actually a recent comp I heard. And I started laughing because I wish I had thought of that as well, because it really does work too. (laughs) It's, it was so interesting. This, there's a lot of not familiar dynamics, but a lot of things that like we see referenced in film or even in like news headlines, but I loved how much we got to know B throughout the story and there were a lot of elements from her that just surprised me. And I think for readers, you might think you know where things are going, but you don't. I'm so glad to hear that. Um, I worked really hard on B. I mean, her voice came to me before anything else um, related to this story. And she was kind of my North Star through the drafting process. And I will admit B is kind of an amalgamation of myself and some of my girlfriends and like our really dark sides in that regard, just some of our snark and then just ramping it up to the 10th degree for purposes of a novel. But I knew that B was going to be polarizing for some readers. But one thing I really leaned on, because I think this is true of any person, if you're funny and entertaining, people want to hang out with you regardless. So I knew if I made B a riot to hang out with during um, people reading the book, whether they were rooting for her or not, they'd want to stay and see what happened to her. They'd be invested. (laughs) That definitely comes across on the page. And you touched on this a little bit, but I'm curious then what was the inspiration for writing this story, putting these characters on the page? I'm very fascinated by villains generally. I like characters that 
go for it, make things happen, despite, you know, morals and ethics. They're very entertaining to read about or watch in movies. So I wanted to write a story with the villain at the center because I find a lot of times when I'm reading or watching TV or a movie, you know, the villain isn't necessarily the centerpiece of the story. So I wanted to write in the voice of some of my favorite characters that I was inspired by. And as far as the 1% of it all, that's another thing I find really fascinating. I mean, I think most people are fascinated by the very wealthy, whether it's in a repellent way or an aspirational way. And I think that's something V even struggles with. Like she knows the cases and the people they run with are probably very monstrous, um, but she thinks the alternative is not as appealing. So she goes for it anyway. And I think that push pull um, really drives a lot of her interior monologues. So I wanted to make sure to lean into that with her. B really seems to sort of create her ideal family. She finds like her ideal male target and then crafts everything she needs to in this attempt to build, you know, the family and the life that she wants or that she didn't have, particularly with her actual family. What drew you to that sort of found family trope where she sort of does whatever she can and whatever it takes to build this life that she thinks she wants. I think with B, without spoiling too much for anyone that hasn't read, mm -hmm. you know, she was raised by someone where she always felt unsafe, insecure, not sure what was coming next. So to me, it felt really natural that she would look to make some money moves. Cause I, it's not really about the money and the stuff for her. It's about the security and the safety that she believes it will provide for her. And as far as Colin goes, I mean, this happens pretty early in the book. She kind of rattles off some of the men she went out with previously, kind of like older guys that, you know, had cash or whatever, but weren't necessarily very nice to her. And she kind of thought maybe that's just how they all are. And when she comes across Colin, who is very well-meaning and sweet despite some of his faults um it just made so much sense for her like she can comfortably see what her life will be I mean she's looking for something that is the opposite of exciting she wants to know where her next meal is coming from she wants to know where you know where she's going to live for the rest of her life a lot of that stuff that some people might not find attractive in Colin those are the things that attract her to him it's just the basic needs being met um, when you really boil it down, obviously to the nth degree with someone like Colin, but. Yeah. And what's so interesting and it's hard not to want to get really into detail with this. I don't want to spoil the reading experience <laughs> for anybody with this book, but there's a really interesting dynamic there where she does pick Colin for specific reasons. And then there was one section and I'm going to quote the book to you, if that's okay, that I absolutely loved where she's talking about her relationship with Colin and she, you write that Colin case was like a sad grilled cheese sandwich of a man, but I had transformed him into a proper croque monsieur courtesy of my homegrown wits and wiles. And I thought that that was so funny for B because here you have this man who has seemingly every resource, anything you could possibly want. And she still knows that there are things that can be improved, you know, about him and his personality and things that she can, you know, add to his life to make him that much more interesting and that much more dynamic when he's just sort of like a grilled cheese uh, <laughs> in this really wild world. 
of the 1%. I just loved that, that section. It really sort of, for me, started to solidify what B's goals were and kind of what, she, who she was as a person. And, and I felt similarly that she is an absolute riot to read about and see her journey through this story. Yeah. B does not have a confidence problem. <laughs> no, she um, does not. And I think she does see potential in Colin. She sees potential in this other character later on too. And I think one of the things that she tries to bring out of those characters and something that like kind of frustrates her about them too, is that they have either money or resources or they're very beautiful. And she feels like they aren't maxing out their potential. And for B, that's pretty much everything she's about. There's another part where she is sort of fantasizing about the things she could become once she's in that family. And she is totally thinking she could run their company. She could run for office one day. I mean, she really thinks she can take on the world if she has all of these things in order. Um, so for like giving Colin a glow up or whatever, I think she's excited to, um, bring, bring more to his table as it were. <laughs> I agree. And I think that's an interesting point. Like if these other characters only had the confidence to do certain things or only like leaned into the resources that they had, I'm thinking particularly of some of the scenes where she sees Gail, um, you know, Colin's best friend, who's kind of like the third person in their relationship. And <laughs> there's often comments about Gail's appearance where like, she's wearing the wrong color. Like it does nothing for her. She's wearing the wrong silhouette. This person has all of these resources, endless money. And she doesn't have like a sense of, you know, what would look good on her or what would feel good or what's stylish or anything. And I thought that was interesting where um, you see how B just doesn't understand why they're not like grasping their potential. Like, why aren't they dressing, you know, this way or embracing like all of these things that they have. And um, it's funny because I think in Gail's case, she just doesn't care. Right. <laughs> she doesn't. And I think that frustrates B because she believes she has to care so much to continue her ascent. Um, and I think in some ways, uh, she's jealous of Gail that Gail doesn't have to care so much because I was really careful with B in terms of, I mean, I think she enjoys some of the stuff, but it really is a lot of work to be B. I mean, she is at 124 seven basically. And to see someone like Gail who doesn't care, it just doesn't compute for B. And I think it really frustrates her. <laughs> I think so. And so circling back a little bit to some of the relationships that you explore in this book, there's obviously the dynamic between B and Gail and the friendship there with Colin. And then the other big relationship that's sort of present throughout the rest of the story is B's relationship with her mother. So you kind of have present day and then there's some flashbacks to B when she was younger with her mother. What drew you to explore that relationship dynamic of mothers and daughters? Because it can be so tricky. It is just a complex relationship, isn't it? And I personally get along very well with my mother, but I think any woman in particular, um, it's just a complicated, sometimes fraught relationship through your whole life. Um, so initially when I wrote this book, mother wasn't as big of a presence. And my agent very adorably said, 
you know, you wrote a book about a complicated mother-daughter relationship. And I was like, oh God, I guess I did. So when I went back in the revision, I really um, dialed it up and went into some flashbacks um, very methodically because I didn't want to go back and forth every chapter. I just wanted to make sure there were scenes of B and her mother that kind of explain not only their dynamic, but why B is who she is when you're reading about her in the present. So while B and mother's relationship is to an extreme level, I think there are relatable moments um, throughout for readers, um, maybe darker moments or sad moments or just things you regret about mother-daughter dynamics um, that I think are still relatable, even though, you know, B and mother are kind of their own thing. But just as an example, there's um, a moment where mother's kind of picking on B and what she's eating and how, you know, kind of around puberty when her body's changing. Anyway, I think probably everyone has a moment from that time period with their mother that their mother hurt their feelings and it's stuck in your brain forever. So I tried to capture some of those pivotal moments while amping up the drama for purposes of the novel and who B and mother are. And I think you really did that, especially the feelings that we see from younger B where all she wants to feel is closeness with her mother. And those things are, are, they're seemingly on different pages and how they're expressing the way that they care for each other. So I think if you asked mother, she would say that she took care of her, was always there for her. And obviously B doesn't necessarily feel that way. And so I think that's interesting that you, you just can see different situations, um, you know, entirely, or I'm sorry, the same situation from entirely different perspectives where you think the goal is the same, you love and care for one another, but it's absolutely not expressed how the other person may want. Totally. And those scenes from mother's perspective, I almost don't even want to think about it. because Mother um, scares me. <laughs> she is something. And so to that Point. I'm wondering if mother has a name for you because in the book, she's only referred to um, as mother. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, oh, does she have an actual, does name? she have an actual name? You know, in an early draft she did and it didn't feel right. And I think I don't know her name because B doesn't know her name. Mm-hmm. B doesn't even know her own name. Yeah. <laughs> like, so there's sort of, as far as their birth certificates go, I think it's a mystery to everyone but mother. And I don't think she would ever tell. I don't think she would tell either. I think that's something that will never be revealed. <laughs> <laughs> so we talked about this a little bit and I, I love that this is, I don't want to say not the normal. I love that this is a little bit of a different focus because when you look at the book straight on before we read it it might sort of look like there's one person who's the hero and one person who's the villain. And in reading it, you think that the hero of the story is B and the villain of the story is Gail, but that's not quite so clear cut once you get into the story. And I'm wondering if you did all of that intentionally to play with those different shades of morality, you know, we have good and bad and who we're meant to be rooting for, because I'm still rooting for B, even though she might not be the clean cut hero that we thought at the start of the book. (laughs) So I think it depends on the reader. I'm with you, Emma. I'm always rooting for B. She is my very favorite. Um, And I know everyone's calling her an anti-hero and I don't know. To me, she's just a regular hero. I love B because she makes it happen. She's a striver. 
anytime something bad happens to her, she's the type of person that like uses it as fuel to like propel her forward. And I just really like characters like that. I've had some people read the book <laughs> for reasons unknown to me. They love Gail. Um, and, you know, and then there's some tertiary characters that I really enjoy as well. One of them is Colin's sisters. One of them is B's. I'm putting friend in quotation marks. Um, Ren Daly. There's just, um, I just wanted to make sure every character, even if they're only shown here and there, is a three-dimensional person. So the person reading is going to latch on to whoever they just seem to gravitate to. I like to leave things kind of open-ended. I'm sure you kind of thought some of that while you were reading, um, because that's part of the fun of being a reader and making up your own mind. I don't really like to emotionally manipulate in anything that I write. Um, I'd rather let people make up their own minds. I think that's part of the fun of not only reading, but then talking about a book later with your friends or your book club. And that's so interesting because I am firmly team B. I absolutely <laughs> did not want Gail to have any success in anything <laughs> with this dynamic, <laughs> but that's interesting that you could certainly gravitate towards one character or another, depending on, you know, a myriad of different things. But for the pot, the purposes of this podcast, I'm going to say that we're team B. <laughs> right. Thank you. I will always be team B. I think team B is probably going to be stronger by the time the book gets into readers' hands. But I have a feeling there will be a cohort of Gale fans, um, maybe just to be contrarian. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, I worked really hard on Gale, too, because I want, again, I wanted people to latch on to who they want to latch on to. And if she was just kind of a, you know, mustache twirling villain, then everything's so obvious. But Gail has layers, too. I mean, you could read this book again through Gail's perspective, and you could very well be on her team. So. Absolutely. And that's what I think is so interesting about these characters, because they're both functioning out of the place that they think is right. And you could very easily argue either side, just depending on, you know, anything um, or your mood that day when you're reading this book. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. Hi there. I'm Heather Drago. And I'm Sarah Saunders. We host the podcast, That's a Hard No, about saying no and setting boundaries. So you can become that true and empowered you that this world needs. Saying no isn't just okay. It's the key to living an authentic, fulfilling life. I'm a licensed professional clinical counselor. So while this podcast is in no way a replacement for one-on-one -on -one therapy, I suppose I know what I'm talking about. I'd say so. We talk about learning to say no and set healthy boundaries and how it impacts mental health, physical health, relationships, parenthood, and more. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit our website, hardnopodcast.com. We're here to help you find your no and say it unapologetically. 
That's a hard no. I'm curious if you drew inspiration for Gail from any one thing or person, or if that was a, a combination of several things. Um, Gail and Colin's family are people I've like an amalgamation of some people I've run into over the course of my life. I may have like dated some guy that had kind of a harsh mother on me, things like that. So it's not like an exact interpretation, but those were um, experiences that I pulled from. But Gail is not one specific person. She's more of a representation of the type of person that wouldn't want be to, you know, be a part of that world and the things she might say or do to keep her out. She was a very interesting piece of work, <laughs> in my opinion. Yeah. And it's funny yeah. too, because B totally underestimates her at the beginning and thinks, oh, this is just going to be like a fun way to pass the time. Gail's not going to know what hit her. Like, she doesn't know who I am. Like, I could take her easily. And then it turns out like Gail is a worthy foe, <laughs> as B likes to say. And I think it's cool to see like two very smart women going at it. And it's actually not that much about Colin. It's more about their station in life and what they're going for and their interests um, conflict. So, yeah. And it was very interesting just to see both of them, like really show their skill, their intelligence, because I think at the very beginning, you're really not sure which way things are going to go. When you meet both characters, you're kind of like, okay, like some friendly competition. And mm -hmm. it really ups the ante by the time we get to the end. <laughs> yeah. There's a scene in the middle that really escalates and it's one of my favorites, but I feel like I probably shouldn't talk about it because I don't want to spoil anything, but there is like this moment. I remember writing it so clearly and I was like, Oh man, Gail, <laughs> like I know you're shaking in her boobs. <laughs> we, I feel like we can have like the spoiler section <laughs> of the interview because I want to ask the question that is a huge spoiler. I'm curious at the end of the book, this, mm -hmm. this will designate my spoiler chat. Um, B's pregnant. Mm -hmm. Is the baby a girl or uh, is that up to the reader? You know, I can tell you, um, okay. <laughs> a girl. Yeah. I think it's going to be a girl. And my hope is um, I'll get to write uh, a sequel to Stone Cold Fox. So we see other things happening, but I also am very curious to see B as a mother to a daughter specifically. I don't think it would be as interesting to see her parents a uh, boy. <laughs> no. And that, that was my thinking because I think it would be so cool to see this character sort of reinvent that mother daughter dynamic that she, you know, didn't get. And it wouldn't be the same if it was a son. No, I think she'll find herself doing some of the things that she wouldn't have wanted her mother to do just by virtue of like remembering that. And it's like her instinct. And then I could also see her really overcorrecting and being a poor mother in that regard and just being like, so like really forcing the relationship. Yeah. Um, and I, I think it's just, again, that whole different dynamic of mothers and daughters versus like mothers and sons. I have a small uh, child who I said, I would, I won't be one of those moms that just lets their sons get away with whatever. And I'm really having a hard time fighting that where I'm just like, it's okay, honey. You know, that really classic, like mother son dynamic of like, it's fine. You, you know, what, Emma, that actually could be interesting. I kind of forgot about that. Like how there are some women who say they like are ruining their sons to become mm -hmm. like a husband 
one day because they're treating him like a king or a prince. Yes. Funny too. Maybe she'll have twins who can say. (laughs) The possibilities are endless, but it is really interesting to see those dynamics like actually come to fruition because I think everyone has the best of intentions, but you don't necessarily know how you're going to be. Right. I can imagine you wouldn't know until, until it's time. (laughs) Exactly. Okay. So end of spoiler chat a little bit. I do want to ask you about the book cover. I'm a huge fan of cover design in general, and I'm particularly drawn to this book cover. I'm like holding it for the listeners to not see uh, with their ears, (laughs) (laughs) but this cover is certainly something that caught my eye. The first time I saw it, it's incredible. And I'm I have a twofold question. What was it like to see the finished cover design for the first time? And how did this design come to be? Oh my gosh. I am so obsessed with this cover. And I was nervous is the wrong word. I was a little anxious to see what they were going to come up with. Cause sometimes you hear stories about the author being like seeing their cover for the first time. And it, it doesn't necessarily meet their expectations. And they have to have this awkward confrontation, whatever, any of that. So when I saw it for the first time, I was, I lived in London for two months last year um, with my husband. He was there for work and I luckily got to come as well. And it was St. Patrick's day and I, it was late. Um, Cause I was obviously in London and I just happened to be on my phone and the email came up like cover. I, and I like screamed when I opened it, when I saw it, I was just like, Oh my God. Like I wouldn't have even like envision the chartreuse, like the neon green, but it's just so arresting. I immediately went out and got the same manicure. I started looking for the rings so I can wear them on my book tour. Like I just went all in emotionally on the cover. Um, As far as the ideation process, I was very lucky. My editor did ask me for kind of like a mood board or recent covers. I liked um, movie stills. We talked a lot about heartbreakers, things like that. Um, I knew I wanted a woman on the cover. but not seeing her whole face. And I know that's kind of controversial. Some people don't like that, but I feel like for the purposes of B and her story, um, her profile and the manicure and the rings, it just was so perfect. So I'm really lucky. Um, the book designers beyond the yen, she's very talented, just nailed it. It's like, she read the book and was like, okay, let's sell this thing. <laughs> because it really, um, is such an incredible cover. I'm so lucky. It's so stunning. And I really love the pop of the font, like over top of the really gorgeous image. I think this is definitely as beautiful of a cover as I feel like benefits the story. Like it just, it, it matches perfectly. And I don't know that covers always match the story perfectly. I agree with you. I did have one request. I was like, look, I'm open-minded, but the one thing I don't really want is like random blobs of color in the title. I feel like that was really trendy for a while. And I was like, give me something for the readers to sink their teeth into a little bit here. And they um, over-delivered. It's an incredible cover. My book club, we vote um, every year for best cover of all of the books we read over the year. And I feel like if we read my book, mine would win bar none. (laughs) I agree. It's really stunning. And I think eye-catching and it just goes so nicely with the, with the story as well. I'm a huge fan of this cover. Thank you. Me too. (laughs) You're welcome. So you mentioned your book tour. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about that? 
Of course, I'm having my launch event here in Los Angeles um, at Diesel Brentwood, which is one of my favorite stores in town. So it'll be out in the courtyard. I'm going to be in conversation with Julie Clark, who wrote The Last Flight, which is one of my favorite thrillers. Um, so I'm very lucky that she's agreed to be in conversation with me. So that's going to be on February 15th, which is the day after publication at 6.30. And then that following Sunday, this will all be on my website too, in case... Um, but uh, on Sunday, I go to San Diego, the Diesel in Del Mar. Then I fly to Chicago, my hometown, where I'll be at Madison Street Books on February 23rd, which is a Thursday night. Then I fly to New York, where I'll be at Book Club Bar. I know the owner very well, Erin Neary. She's lovely. So she'll be hosting me, and I'll be in conversation with Liv Stratman. And then I go to Scottsdale, Arizona to the Poison Pen, which is such a fabulous store. And there I'll be in conversation with Good Morning Arizona's Olivia Fierro, who has a book club um, herself. It's really going to be such an exciting time. I really can't wait to see my friends and family, but also meet the readers and just kind of get B's story out there. I want people to talk about it and have fun. And I'm, I'm very excited to go on tour. I can't wait. I think that's going to be so wonderful. I did admittedly try to look up where you might be to see if you were coming anywhere near the very scenic Cleveland, Ohio, where Overdrive is based. <laughs> oh, that's so cool. My husband is from Cleveland and we did, it was discussed, but um, Chicago sort of my, where that's where I'm from. Um, but yeah. hopefully one day I'll get to go to Cleveland. We typically go once a year. So maybe at the very least next time we go, I can sign some stock at um, one of the yeah. There, <laughs> we would love to have you come by. Like, come to the Overdrive headquarters. We have a great library to. system. <laughs> I would love to. <laughs> uh, that would be wonderful. A couple of random questions, if you'll indulge me. Absolutely. Um, your your background is in screenwriting, um, and this is your debut novel. Do you prefer screenwriting to writing fiction, or do they both fulfill different needs? I think they fulfill different needs. I've written more scripts than I've written books. So I guess at this point, I feel more um, confident is the wrong word because I am very happy with my debut novel. But screenwriting to me, I feel like I've got it. I know what I'm doing. Um, not saying that you have to be formulaic, but there are just certain things that are expected, right? It's a little more of a rubric in certain respects. Not that you can't be experimental, but there's expectations. In a novel, you can do whatever you want. <laughs> and I found that so liberating. And, you know, in some of my earlier drafts, and I think this is also by virtue of being a screenwriter, I write, um, at least um, my instinct at first, I write very concisely. <laughs> I realized I really had to go back and fill in, um, you know, what they're wearing, what they're listening to, what the room looks like, and typically with a screenplay. Um, there's just not enough real estate to go into that. That's usually up to the director. So it's just a little more, a screenplay reads a little more terse um, than a novel. So I enjoy them both. I visualize them both while I'm writing. Um, you know, I hope that Stone Cold Fox becomes uh, something in the visual medium soon as well. So they do definitely go hand in hand for me. And I feel like screenwriting first made me a stronger novelist because I had a really good handle on story and emotional payoffs and all the things that uh, wish fulfillment, all the things that I like as a reader um, and as a watcher of film and television. And I wanted to make sure that my book um, reflected those moments too. 
Yeah, that's wonderful. And I think that does come across. And it's certainly interesting just to hear about the differences in the different mediums, you know, of writing the screenplays or screenwriting versus uh, fiction and things like that. I don't know that I would have put together, although it makes perfect sense that screenwriting is more concise because then you're translating a lot of that to the visuals. Whereas obviously with fiction, you've got to set the stage a lot more for the reader. Totally. Just to put like numbers behind it. I think my first draft of Stone Cold Fox was like 55 and I knew it was short and I was going to have to fill it out. It's about 55,000 words. Mm -hmm. And I uh, the published copy is like just over a hundred thousand, like maybe one Oh five. So it was like twice the, <laughs> twice the word count to go back in. And a screenplay is typically anywhere from 20 to 25,000 words. So not as much real estate. You really have to get to the point much faster. <laughs> yeah. So in the acknowledgments of this book, you referenced uh, the library um, in your mention of your mom and Overdrive is the library company. And so I'm wondering if you had any favorite library memories uh, beyond what's written in the acknowledgments that you could share with listeners. Oh, sure. I mean, I'll shout out the Palos Heights Public Library. Um, I lived in Palos Heights when I was really young. This is a suburb of Chicago from like kindergarten to the middle of sixth grade when I ended up moving and then my parents got divorced. So to me, Palos Heights just as a whole, the community represents like a really happy time for me. And the library was within walking distance to my house where I would ride my bike. My friends would all go with me. Um, and I just remember reading books so fast that my mom actually had to ask the librarian if I could check out more um, than what was allowed just because I was going through them so fast. And they said it was okay. I feel like I was um, a regular <laughs> there and the librarians knew me by name. And I just always felt very much at home at the library. And um Something I also remember probably around the time I got to like fourth or fifth grade, because you tend to, as at a certain age, you gravitate to the YA, the children's section. And when you walked, walked into the Palos Heights Library at the time, I understand they underwent a big renovation, so I haven't been in. But when you walked in back then, the kids section was towards the left and the adult section was toward the right. And there was a time where I just started going into the adult section and just out looking picking novels just based on the spine or the title calling out to me and feeling so liberated. Like I could read whatever I wanted to read at any time. It's just, I'm a huge fan of libraries in general and the Palos Heights library in general is imprinted on my, on my memory. It was just um, a really special place to me and still is. I love to hear that. It's always so fun to hear how impactful libraries are on many people, whether they're authors, readers, you know, or just members of the community. We love our libraries here at Overdrive. So uh, that's always nice to hear. Yeah. And it was my mom that really pushed going to the library at a young age and going to story time when I was really little. Just all of that um, was always kind of a fabric of my childhood. They're such a great resource. It's absolutely wonderful that when people take advantage of their libraries um, in their community because they have so many things to offer. Oh my God, I, the library to this day. So I live in Marina Del Rey and the library is just as adorable as you would imagine because it's on the water and they have a whole special nautical section. So if you are really into boats, I mean, they have anything you could want and it's very specific to the Marina Del Rey branch. And I just think that is so cool. <laughs> I love that where it's so catered to the community. It just feels extra special. Mm -hmm. um, I have a few really quick, 
I say rapid fire questions, but you don't have to answer them super (laughs) rapidly. (laughs) But what is the, this might be tricky. What's the best book you've read recently? The best book I read recently. Um, I just, oh, I have a few to share. I read some, I love celebrity um, autobiographies and I didn't read it when it came out for whatever reason, but I just read Selma Blair's Mean Baby and I was blown away by it. I loved it. It was brutally honest and so introspective and I always liked her, but now I'm like a super fan. I just thought it was really well done. I also read on the recommendation of Jordy's book club on Instagram, which I love. He did like his top 10. Um, so I squeezed this one in just before the end of the year, The Lioness by Chris Bajalian, which I honestly hadn't read him before, even though I love The Flight Attendant on HBO. But The Lioness was riveting. Like it combined so many things that I like. I mean, animals and, and they were on safari and then they were kidnapped, but they were all old Hollywood people. I mean, it was just like the perfect blend of things that interest me and I really, really liked that. Um, and of course, I also like the new Maggie O'Farrell. The marriage portrait was lovely. That's um, my book club's pick this month. So we're talking about it on next Thursday, I believe. Um, so I'm excited to discuss that one. And then um, it hasn't come out yet, but I can't wait to read Spare by Prince Harry. <laughs> I loved um, Palace Papers. So I'm excited. I like can't get enough of this stuff. I'm sick. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, the palace papers was one of my favorite books of last year. It was so good. It was riveting. <laughs> it was so good. And I am eagerly awaiting my copy of spare. It just shipped and I'm kind of kicking myself. Cause I mean, you order it, you pre-order. It's a good thing, but I just want to go get it. <laughs> I know I should have pre-ordered to pick up and I also elected to have it shipped. Um, so hopefully it'll be in our hands soon. Cause I can't Hope- wait. Hopefully we can um, talk about Prince Harry's memoirs when your second book goes out. (laughs) So speaking of which, what are you working on now? I just finished a first draft of my second novel and it just about killed me. (laughs) It's funny. I was like, um, I was on a deadline for the end of the year and it was getting there. It was close, but like my poor husband, I was like crying every day for like three weeks, just because I'm like, I don't know if it's going to get there. And it was just um, a true labor of love, but I'm obsessed with it. I can't wait to really dig in and do the revisions. Cause for me, um, the revisions are more fun than the first draft. I don't know if every writer feels that way, but the first draft to me is just so I try not to edit as I go, but that's hard for me. And it's just more, it just feels like more laborious. Whereas like revision to me feels like, okay, now this is where the magic happens. And I really get to sculpt these characters and what they're doing and where they're going. And um, it, it'll sound like a book like me, but it is a departure from Stone Cold Fox um, in some respects. So I think I'm, I'm really excited whenever I'm allowed to reveal what it is, but I can't, I can't wait. I'm, my husband read the draft in one day and he was like, Rachel, this is going to be huge, <laughs> which was I, so romantic. <laughs> I can't wait. And it's so funny because here I am asking you questions about Stone Cold Fox. It's not even out yet. And I'm already like, what's next? What else do we have? (laughs) You know what? I've been working in Hollywood a long time and that's always the question. What else you got? What's what's on the pike? So no, I'm really, really excited. I love writing books. That's what I discovered 
um, in this process of writing Stone Cold Fox. You know, I always wanted to write a book. Obviously, I've been growing up in the library, and it's always been something I wanted to do. Um, and now that I've done it, I really, really enjoy it. And I want to write many novels over the course of my career. And I hope we get to read many novels from you because uh, Stone Cold Fox was absolutely phenomenal. It, phenomenal. It definitely kept me gripped the entire time waiting to see what on earth would happen with these characters. <laughs> and I certainly was not disappointed with where things end up. <laughs> oh, good. I'm glad to hear that. You know, endings are personal. Some people will love your ending. Some people will be like, what the heck was that? You know, it's, but I think if you're writing something that everybody universe, I don't know, I, to me, you want people to love it and you want people not to love it because it means you've said something, you've agitated, you've entertained. It, there's just more to dig into. Um, so um, I'm glad you were in the, in the former camp of of loving the ending because <laughs> I love the ending too. And it's hard. I had several ideas about where it would all wind up, but I th think I made the right choice for B because she was, everything had to relate back to her and make sense for what she would do. Even if I wanted to put her somewhere else, if it didn't seem natural to her character, I couldn't do it. <laughs> yeah. And I think that that comes across. And so if there's anything that you want readers to take away from Stone Cold Fox, what would it be? I want readers to have a good time first and foremost. I take my scripts and books seriously like I'm a like a host of a party. <laughs> I want to make sure everyone is having fun, meeting interesting people, maybe being, you know, uh pushed a little or agitated, like talking about something interesting. Um, but above all things, I want people to read this and have fun and be thrilled and not knowing exactly where it's going. And whether you love B or hate B, I hope that readers root for her and that they're team B. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. And this was a book I, I kind of mix up my approach when I read, you know, kind of thrillers is sometimes I'll get really invested in like figuring out what's happening or like figuring out where it's going to go. And so sometimes I'll be like, okay, on page 96, I think this is what's going to happen, you know, from what I know so far. And I had a really fun time kind of doing that with this book to be like, okay, this is what I think. And not necessarily, not being right or not being wrong in certain regards. And it, it was a really great time to read about these characters. Oh, that's all I want to hear. So thank you, Emma. <laughs> oh, thank you. So as we wrap up, where can our listeners find you on social media or online? I'm primarily, as social media goes, I'm primarily on Instagram. And my handle is at Rach Kohler Croft because Rachel Kohlercroft was too long, I guess. So I go by Rach on Instagram, but my website is um, rachelkohlercroft.com. And I don't really use Facebook that much anymore. And I'm technically on Twitter, but I'm more of an observer than anything else. So Instagram and website is the best way to connect with me online. <laughs> Perfect. Thank you so much. Everybody make sure you check out Stone Cold Fox. This comes out on February 14th. Thank you so much, Rachel, for coming to chat with me today. It was an absolute blast. I cannot wait to see this book in the hands of other readers. And then also what else you're, you're working on. I'm very excited to see what's coming. Oh, thank you so much, Emma. I had so much fun. This is actually my first podcast as a guest ever. So Yay! such a wonderful host. Thank you for taking such good care of me. I had a really good time.
Oh, I'm so glad. Thank you so much. Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode on Overdrive.com and our library friends can purchase these titles in Marketplace. Professional Book Nerds is proud to be an Evergreen Podcast signature program. To learn about other Evergreen Podcasts, visit evergreenpodcast.com. Our podcast is produced, recorded, and edited by Emma Dwyer, Jill Grunewald, and Joe Skelly, and presented by Overdrive. To learn more, visit professionalbooknerds.com. Mad Magazine. Advertising mascots. B-movie posters. And cartoons. Oh yeah, can't forget cartoons. If you get the funky connection that ties these pop culture gems together, you'll dig two designers walk into a bar. See, we're a couple of creatively curious pals living between the bookends of grand museums and dive bars. Hey, you know the place. The sweet spot where highbrow and lowbrow become drinking buddies. So join our barroom chats as we talk influential work and uncover stories of how the familiar became iconic. Think behind the music for the stuff we love. Check out our website at twodesignerswalkintoabar.com. And listen wherever you get your podcasts or visit evergreenpodcasts.com.